Welcome back to Neurotech Pub. Today, we have a special surprise. We've kidnapped Taryn Southern, the creative director at BlackRock Neuro. She actually had no idea what she was walking into when she came to visit the office today, but she's co-hosting with me. Oh, thank you. It's so good to be here and to finally get to step foot in the, in the Paradromics offices as well. And I'm the creative director at BlackRock Neurotech, um, which basically means I oversee content and creative brand and communication strategy. This is a really fun time to be telling stories in our field. And I think that you've done an excellent job of educating people in a really fun, easy to digest way, Matt, with this podcast. So I'm very happy to be, happy to be part of it and happy to have three of, uh, three of my favorite individuals having joined us. Yeah. So maybe we should talk about our guests today. One of them is Ian Burkhart, who I I had the pleasure of knowing before the podcast was recorded. He's a research consultant, speaker, advocate. He's the founder of the Ian Burkhart Foundation that helps people with spinal cord injuries to make changes in their lives and and get access to uh, things that that sort of help them with mobility assistance and um, cutting edge treatments and assistive technologies. He's also the VP of the North American Spinal Cord Injury Consortium. And I think, Taryn, you were saying he, he has a new thing going on too. Yeah, he wanted me to add, um, he founded a group called the BCI Pioneers Coalition, which is an independent group that consists of research participants in the BCI space who will be getting together quarterly um, and through an online forum to discuss certain issues specific to research participants and share those um, share those insights with the larger neurotech industry. So you can check them out at bcipioneers.org. Um, really excited to see what comes out of that group. And you know Jan and Nathan better than I do, so maybe I'll, I'll let you introduce them. Great, yes. So Nathan is um, is a neurotech consultant. He's also a speaker and an artist. Um, one of the things I love about Nathan is just how curious he is and applying his BCI Uh, towards a lot of different endeavors, including creating art. Um, So you might have seen him featured in publications like Wired, MIT Tech Review. He's been in NPR, Fortune, The Atlantic. He's a super creative, interesting guy. So excited to have him here. Nathan told us about his artwork that he's selling. Um, I believe that they're NFTs. Yeah, I mean, I think generally speaking, it's going to be so exciting to see how patients or prospective research participants will, will use these devices Um, particularly as, you know, portable systems become more readily available. Uh, Nathan was one of the first people to even have access to a portable system. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that will just continue and scale. Um, But it was really fun to hear about, to hear about his experiences. We also had Jan on the podcast. She's an author and public speaker. She's spoken at DARPA, the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, and the National Convention of the ALS Association about her experience as a BCI trial participant at Pitt. Um, She's also the author of a fictional mystery novel, which is available on Amazon. So a really creative group. that That title is Sharp as a Cucumber. So Taryn, I'm curious, you knew all three of them before you recorded. Was there anything you learned that was new in this conversation? There was, because of course you brought up so many interesting questions that, you know, I just hadn't thought to ask them previously. So I I think specifically, I was really excited by, actually, by the way, all three of them spoke about 
kind of the sensorial experience of using the device. I thought that was really, really interesting and I hadn't really heard them describe it in those terms. And then there were just other personal life stories that hadn't hit my radar before. I thought it was really cool that, to contrast how Jan and Nathan looked at the device because Jan was, it was like very personal. She, she had named her robotic arm and like, it, it, like she really connected with it. And Nathan was just kind of like, yeah, you know, it's there. <laughs> it's so true. So true. I mean, I think all three of them had pretty distinctive views um, about their devices and also just about the future of these devices in general. So yeah. we were fortunate enough to get enough content for how many episodes, Matt? Two episodes. Wow. I, we got some feedback <laughs> that these episodes are too damn long. So yeah. we, we started cutting them up. Okay, great. You know, the, the other thing, um, I think the thing that mo- most people who are in the field really appreciate, but a lot of, I think a lot of like investors that I've met or just members of the general public don't appreciate as much is that the spectrum of, you know, how people want to engage with technology ranges broadly. That was something that Ian pointed out and something you could, you got a sense for just from talking with Ian, Nathan and Jan. And I think that that's like, I think that's really useful to take into account when you're when you're building these devices and and yeah you you really need to kind of talk with a lot of people and get a and, and get a really good representative sample of of how different people might want to use the same device or not use it. I agree completely. This interview is going to be released in two parts. If you want to keep up uh, with the release of episode two, follow us on Twitter at Neurotech Pub, and you can find out when the next half is coming out. And definitely subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever Matt wants you to find it. <laughs> um, and of course, if you want to find uh, Paradromics or BlackRock Neurotech on social, we're, we're on all the social medias. Um, and please check out the show notes for references, details, and where to find Ian, Jan, and Nathan's work. Don't forget to also stop by BCI pioneers.org to support them and their efforts to educate the public on BCI awareness. Thanks a lot for joining us. And I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Thank you all for being here. And I'm excited because this is the first time that the three of you are all in the same virtual room together. Well, I think, I mean, I think it would be nice to introduce our our three lovely guests, um, Ian, Jan, and Nathan, who are um, incredible pioneers in the in the BCI space, and have all had you know significant, remarkable achievements um, with their respective BCIs. So maybe it would be wonderful to hear a little bit from each one of you about how you initially became part of this community and some of the significant milestones that you're known for. Jan, should we start with you? I think so. Chronologically, I think I was first. That's right. You were first. Yeah. I'm Jan Scheuermann in Pittsburgh, PA. In October 2011, I saw a video about a guy at the University of Pittsburgh to do a study that moved an an electronic arm with his brain. His name was Tim Hemmies. He only had an implant for 30 days. But we, my attendant and I watched this uh, video and were just so excited. And I kept thinking, oh, I wish I could do that. And at the end of the video, it said, volunteers, please call. I said to Karina, my attendant, write the number down, write it down. And she said, I already am. I know you. So as soon as the video was over, I called and I said, 
Don't eat the people doing the study with the way you move a robot car with your brain. I, my words were just tumbling out on each other. They said, yeah, that sounds nice. I said, well, I'm a quadriplegic and I want to do that. Well, first we did a couple phone interviews to make sure I qualified. I met with the team, including the surgeon, the doctor running the study, and the, um, well, let me see, the scientist running the study. And they said, yeah, it should, yeah, it should be a good candidate. They had talked to my doctor. I had met with their staff psychiatrist. He had to make sure I was the right type of person, and I knew what I was getting in for. And I remember that first meeting, they said, if we get you using this robotic arm, do you have a goal in mind? Because Tim Hems had used it to touch his girlfriend's hand. Then she took the robotic arm as an embodiment of his hand. It was very touching. And I knew when they asked me for my goal, they wanted me to say something like, I want to hug my children or I want to touch my husband's cheek. And I said, well, yeah, my goal is I'd like to feed myself chocolate. <laughs> and I was waiting for them to laugh. And instead, they all started nodding, saying, yeah, we should be able to get, do that. So the surgery was February 10th, 10 years ago this week. So that's how I got into it. And Jan, how long did you have your implant for? From February until two and a half years later in October. So that's, what, two years and eight months, 32 months. And then which one of you comes next in the timeline? It would be close between Ian and Nathan. But I'm guessing Ian, right? Um, no, technically, I think my um, story starts before his. But because I had an explant, because the first implants were not in the ideal place, between that time, Ian got his. And then that's how he was um, a few months before me, possibly, I think. Well, then I think technically you qualify, Nathan, for the second, <laughs> the second yeah, intro. Yeah, you, you get to go. My first implant was November of what, 2014? So was yours before that? I was in April of 2014. Okay, so you were just before just before me for my re-implant. So yeah, I'm Nathan Copeland, and I live uh, south of Pittsburgh, and right at the same time, uh, that Jan was joining the study, I also got a phone call because I was on a, a research registry since in 2004, I was in a car accident and I was, I broke my neck and I'm down a C5 quadriplegic and I got a call and they asked if I wanted to join a, a BCI study where I could have implants and control a robotic arm. And I said, yeah, that sounds really cool. And I went in for a screening and I actually didn't qualify because I had um, some wrist movement and that was considered significant hand function in their exclusion protocols, even though it really wasn't. I can lift my wrist up and uh, that's it. So I, I didn't qualify. And it was a couple years later that I was doing a different research study with people from the same lab and they said, you'd be good for this ECI research. And I said, yeah, I really wanted to do that before, uh, but I didn't qualify. And they said, oh, we've changed our protocols. And that's how I joined the BCI research study that started right after, after Jan's. Jan had the implants to control the robotic arm. 
and my study actually included two implants in sensory cortex to receive stimulation directly into my brain from the robotic hand sensors or just they can push a button on the computer and kind of you know zap an electrode in my brain and it uh, feels like something coming from my own hand and I'm actually the first human in the world to have implants in sensory cortex. So cool. Yeah, we definitely want to ask you about that a little bit later. Yeah, and then so uh, my initial implants weren't actually in uh, uh, the right areas. So I they gave me three options and they were, you know, quit then and have an explant, uh, continue testing for a while and they would get some data that they could and then have an explant or continue testing and plan for a uh, simultaneous explant and re-implant. And my friend was with me that day and we were, we were um, at a red light going home and he said, I don't even need to ask. I already know what you're going to do. And yeah, I, I planned for a re-implant because, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't feel like quitting. So when they put it in the, the area that they weren't targeting the first time, what area did they put it in? Do you know? Um, so everything was just skewed a little bit. And so they, they did have some coverage of uh, parietal cortex. Yeah, everything, everything was just off a little bit. And there's a million reasons that that, that could have been. And I could have been a bit sleepy in the, the MRI. And, and their, um, their testing was a little bit off. Or, you know, my brain could just be a little weird. I was just curious, did you do any experiments when it went when it was in the other area? Did So we did some stuff where they had an eye tracker and I would do like the saccade movements. I'd have a, a board on my lap with a ring of LEDs and, you know, one would light up and I would think about, you know, I'd either follow it with my eyes or just stay in the middle target and think about it and you know, think about moving my arm in those directions and, and that kind of stuff. So a little bit of stuff. I don't know what ever really came about from that. And Nathan, I believe you currently hold the title for longest chronic implant. Is that right? I do since um, May 4th, 2015. So Star Wars Day. Oh, nice. <laughs> well, congratulations. <laughs> Ian, you're up. Our second longest chronic implant title holder. Sorry. <laughs> you were first for a while. Yeah, so my story started relatively similar to Jan and Nathan's. Um, I was already receiving care at the Ohio State University uh, for my spinal cord injury that happened three years prior. And I kept asking the doctors and therapists that I was walking with, um, what can I look forward to? Is there anything else I can do? Because I really wasn't settled in to where I wanted to be when insurance said, oh, you kind of hit everything that you're going to do for someone with your level of spinal cord injury. And I just kept bugging them as much as I could. And it, it worked out because I fit all the inclusion criteria for a study that they were developing at the same time to use a brain-computer interface to control a muscle stimulation sleeve on the forearm to restore hand movement. And that was something that was really exciting to me because I had used muscle stimulation previously in rehab and I saw the promise that it held. And then when I first came in to try the muscle stimulation system um, to make sure that my hand would respond well and my muscles would respond well, 
Um, I really just, all I could think about is I want to be able to control this instead of having a engineer or clinician control this. And then that's where they kind of opened up to the, the BCI side of the project where it would be implanting one array in my motor cortex to control the device. So I was implanted in April of 2014 and was the first person to use brain-computer interface to move my own body using the muscle stimulation sleeve on my arm. Um, it restored, for me, pronation supination in the hand and flexion extension of the wrist as well as flexion and extension of um, all five digits of my right arm. Um, I was enrolled in that trial for just over seven and a half years and was explanted just last August of 2021. Amazing. Something that people ask me a lot, and I have to say I have no idea, is the question, what, is it, what does it feel like? like or how, what is it like when you're learning to use a BCI? Like, what's that process like? The three of you are, are part of a very rarefied group of people who can answer that question. I feel like the people listening would really love to understand that experience of, of kind of, it's almost like telekinesis, moving things with your mind. I think Nathan will have a very different answer than Jan and I, since he actually had some sensation back to um, his brain. But for me, it was, you know, restoring that hand and wrist function. And so I was just thinking about moving my hand and wrist, which is a, a weird thing when someone asks you to start moving your hand because I don't remember the, when I thought about it when I was growing up. It, you know, as an infant, you, when you're learning that skill, you don't know what you're doing. And, you know, then by the time you grow up and you're old enough to understand what you're doing, you, you don't have to think about it because it's just second nature. Um, so it was pretty challenging because it is kind of abstractive. Am I thinking about this the right way or not, if I'm not giving <laughs> any feedback? But yeah, you had to think about what you're trying to move. And I tried to dial that into, you know, what muscles am I trying to activate in my forearm to make my fingers flex and extend or my wrist? Um, and that helped. And we did a lot of, you know, just repetition of mirror therapy with using one of the researchers' hands next to mine, moving that. And then also, you know, once we were connected to the brain-computer interface and seeing a virtual hand on the screen responding, that gives you that feedback to know if you're thinking about it the right way or not, or at least on the same page. Did it evolve? Like, I'm thinking of like, I try to imagine what it'd be like. I'm thinking like when I first learned to drive, I was really like concentrating on the steering wheel, but now I don't pay attention to it. Like, does it evolve? Like, or do you think about it anymore? Or is it now more like, does it become more like second nature? Or When I first started the, to try to move the arm, they said, think about moving your hand right. And I was trying so hard to move the hand right. I was concentrating and thinking, right, right 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 and then there's time to move it left i thought left 
left, left. And I wasn't thinking about moving my hand. I was trying to move the robotic. And that was very slow for the first couple of days. And as I caught on that it was just like moving my own arm, then it became much more natural. The way I explained it to someone a couple of years later, I said, okay, reach your hand up to do a high five. And they did. And I said, no, what did you think about? And he said, well, not very much. And I said, that's exactly it. It's natural. And even though I had been a quadriplegic for 12 years and my body had forgotten how to move my arm, my brain had not forgotten. So my brain remembered and did what brains are supposed to do. And I thought about moving my arm. And they said, yeah, that's easy. This is how you do it. Then I moved the arm. Uh, when I first started using the BCI, control of the robotic arm has always just been really intuitive and easy. Uh, basically, it worked the first time we tried it, and I think about moving my arm around, and the robotic arm moves around. I think we've controlled up to like nine degrees of freedom. You know, it is one of those things that sometimes thinking less is more. You, you don't have to, you know, think about every single joint and every single little, you know, rotation of your wrists and all that. You just kind of end up thinking about the, the goal that you're trying to do. And then, of course, uh, I have the extra answers to how does it feel because that's the can of worm question since I'm the first person to ever have implants in sensory cortex. And so the sensations that stimulation elicit are entirely electrodependent. So there's 60-some uh, uh, electrodes that are in, in my sensory cortex that they can stimulate on each one. And basically, depending on where exactly they are in the brain, each one will feel like a separate uh, area of my hand, mostly at the base of my fingers or my um, index knuckle. So they'll stimulate one, and it might feel like a pressure and then they can stimulate another and it might just feel like a tingle or like a warm tingle or a combination of those kinds of things and depending on the parameters of the stimulation like if they adjust frequency and that kind of stuff it can feel like tapping or vibration and and it's really cool the first time it happened i had to do a double take and kind of be like okay do that again you know make sure i wasn't you know just imagining things or something because those experiments started at really low amplitudes because you know no one knew what it was going to feel like so safety protocols and all that like they went through it everyone it started really low and i just i didn't feel anything for a you know a couple weeks and i'd be like it just like turn it up all the way and we'll just start from there like like no like okay well so then when i the first thing i felt you know it's one of those just a random tingle that, that you know i could have easily just imagined but knowing that it corresponded to when they just clicked the button that was supposed to send a, a little shock to my brain then i like, oh, okay, yes, that is that. We have our aha moment of science works, how science is supposed to work. It was really cool. And then from there, we just kept going. And, you know, I go in three days a week for four hours, and I might feel it a couple hundred times, maybe, you know, a session. And now it is just second nature and uh, not the most natural sensations. Like, they don't have one-to-one, -one, you know, real-life comparisons sometimes. Sometimes they do, but using them in coordination with the robotic control improved my performance and it kind of boiled down to you know seeing the ro robotic hand grab something as my only form of feedback 
was okay. You know, it's obviously better than not seeing, but depending on the object, I might not know exactly how well it is making contact. And I might go to pick something up and just immediately drop it or, you know, just just not have a good grasp. When I got the sensory feedback, you know, that happened, the intensity would actually increase depending on how much pressure the object um, was receiving from the robotic fingers. So I could just instantly tell if I had, you know, a a firm grasp on the object. And that just kind of let me move on to the next phase of picking up and moving it and not you know, spending extra time just trying to, you know, think, oh, grab it harder or, you know, longer before I would continue interacting with the object. Jan, you flew a flight simulator with your brain. I am really curious, like, when you're flying a plane with your brain, are you thinking the same kinds of things you're thinking to feed yourself chocolate? Or did you have to switch, like, mindsets? Like, how did that work? Well, they said, to make the plane turn right, think that you're turning your wrist this way and turning your wrist that way to make the plane turn left. So it was very quick to pick up. The, yes, exactly. It was very quick to pick up those signals and it became very natural very quickly. And they started me off in the clouds. And after I had the hand signals down, which took about 60 seconds, I was out of my chair. I was out of my broken body. I was flying. I was in the clouds and it was so exciting. I, I remember like it was yesterday, I the goosebumps and the chills and just gasping in awe because I was flying. I started out with my point of view being that I was behind the plane flying it, but then I switched to cockpit view, which was much cooler. (laughs) And I just, man, the whole time I did that flight simulation experiment, you couldn't wipe the smile off my face. I was high from it. We did a similar experiment where I was controlling a car simulator. It was very similar, Jan, as you explained, where... You know, to turn right or left, you're opening you're opening your hand or closing your hand in a pronation supination. And then for me it was accelerate was hand open and brake or decelerate was um, hand closed. And we did the same thing where we were starting kinda in that third person view and it was nice to drive the car and whatnot. Um, but getting in kind of that cockpit view was really really fun because it was really similar to when I'm driving my own car, but I I had less to think about because I was just thinking about moving my hand, one of my hands in only a few directions. It really was that sense of freedom and independence. I'd love to ask a follow-up question to Nathan about the touch sensation. Uh, I hadn't actually, I don't think we've ever talked about this, Nathan, but when you said that not all the sensations are one-to-one to real life experiences, but some of them might be. What is the variation of sensation that you might experience if we were to categorize like vibration, touch like a feather, electrifying sensation? Where does it usually fall? I mean, the the things that have the closest match to sensations that I would have felt um, when I had, you know, intact sensation on my hand are the vibrations there's some that are tapping and there's some of the tapping ones have been so like intense that i would just sit there and look at my hand to be like you know is it really like is it if it was like thumping like visibly i would be like oh that doesn't surprise me like this it 
feels like, you know, I'm being tapped or like poked on, you know, I, I was just like, I wonder if like my muscle is spasming like at the same time or something. It was just weird having that, that one that felt so like it could have actually been happening. So, so those are kind of the ones that are um, the most similar, but probably the most of the sensations I feel just fall into this kind of pressure tingle kind of area. And, you know, I get asked at least once a month to do a, a 60 microamp survey where they just stimulate every electrode at 60 microamps. And I just fill out a form on a it's on a surface of like what the sensation felt like and if how natural it was and you know the different you know there's a slider so I can put how much pressure and but most of them just fall into some range of pressure and tingle and sometimes they're just pressure or tingle and sometimes it's a combination is it pretty stable or is it like you go in one day and they're like number like electrode 11 did nothing the day before. And then as you come in, it's like, holy crap, that's, that's new. <laughs> it's really funny that you picked out 11 because o- over the years, some things have changed and like the electrode we used to use for, you know, lots of things just over and over was electrode 11. And it felt like, you know, the base of my index finger and it was just like the go-to electrode. And then, you know, over time, they kind of didn't respond the same way. And now we use Electrode 19. And that's been stable for, you know, years. And over over the long term, there have been some changes. But for the most part, I think it's been stable. Ian, you've had a really interesting experience with neuroplasticity. Can you tell us a little bit about how things changed as you were going through this functional electrical stimulation trial? Certainly. And it touches a little bit on earlier what you were saying as far as, you know, how does it, how does it change what you're thinking about? I remember the first, you know, few probably weeks to maybe a month of sessions going in and just trying to think about only moving my hand and fingers. And that's the only thing I would focus on. Everything else would need to be pretty quiet in the room and whatnot when we were doing experiments and I would leave the sessions just feeling completely mentally fatigued. And it got easier and easier as I start, we started to incorporate some of the feedback to me as well as myself just learning what to think about to move my hand. And I think one of the interesting aspects of my study was that was focusing on restoring my own arm movement. It allowed me to combine the movement in my shoulder and bicep that I do have still preserved from my spinal cord injury with the movement that the stimulation sleeve and the BCI gave me of my hand and wrist. And that really allowed for a lot of things that we could do because it acted as intense occupational therapy every time I was in a session. And some of that then did translate to me when I was home and not connected to the system of things that I learned how to, you know, just pronate and supinate uh, my forearm so I can pick up objects a little bit better now than I was able to before. Curious for all of you how this research changed or didn't change the way that you think about your own mind and your brain. I mean, the fact that, Nathan, that you were able to have these sensations restored seemingly out of nowhere. I mean, it it almost, it does kind of feel like this untangible um, meta-awareness of the inner workings of your mind. So I'm just curious if any of you had any big take-home insights uh, from the work that you did about how you think about thinking. Uh, I did. 
in that. I have a little saying on my desk. It says, you are more than the body you live in. And I've always believed that in my mind, but it it was really brought home by this experiment. And I have a dictation program. And before my illness, I wrote and produced murder mystery parties. So I used my dictation program to then write. And I wrote a book on that I posted on um, Kindle called um, Sharp as a Cucumber. And I've been writing ever since then. And I've joined a writer's group. And it wouldn't have happened, I think, if I hadn't been part of this study, which made me think, oh, yeah, your life doesn't stop. Your brain's still working. They have the technology that you can right now on the computer. So so do that. Go for it. And I, I'm still writing and still grateful to the program for that. I don't think I've really um, changed how I think about my thinking. It's like I, I recognize that there are implants in my brain. And unless I'm at the lab and actively uh, using BCI, I don't think about them. I know they're there, but I really don't have any reason to think about them because even when I'm using them it's just you know that intuitive I'm thinking about moving my own arm and I'm not thinking about okay you know activate this area of my brain and then you know the electrodes will pick it up and it'll go through the computer and all that it's just you know I think about moving and it moves so I've never really had uh you know any big you know meta awareness of it I mean Sometimes I've like I'll they, ha- they haven't stimulated your spiritual revelation. No, yet. <laughs> no, my third eye is still closed, and they, they haven't <laughs> they haven't found that electrode or whatever. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, sometimes I'll look at things I guess differently, or you know, in a way no one else ever thinks about it. Like I'll think about a video game that I want to play, and I'll kind of be like, you know. Okay, I can I could kind of play it with moving my arm this way for directions, but maybe there's like two buttons you need or three buttons you need and I'm like I don't think I could tell the computer to push the button when I'm thinking about pronating or supinating, you know, could I really do that at the times I would need to while also thinking about these other movements and Sometimes it's just, it would be too much mental gymnastics, I think. But also, I think maybe if I did it for a long time, maybe I could train to kind of think that way. One of the things I wanted to ask all three of you about, I wanted to better understand the cognitive burden or of, of, of using the BCI. Is it something that when you're in the lab, that when you walk out of the lab, you just feel so much more exhausted as a result of that level of concentration? Or how would you describe that for me it started pretty heavy early on as you know a lot of intense concentration on using the device but after i'd say you know six months of going into sessions unless something new was thrown at me it was you know just like riding a bike again because i had all that practice and i was just doing it i wasn't needing to concentrate as hard it was much more second nature and you know i i made sure that i kind of compartmentalized myself of when i was using the system in the lab to when i was home and i couldn't use the system because it was my own hand that i was controlling so that way i wouldn't get upset that oh now i'm home and i can't use my hand like i just was while i was in the lab Um, but it was really an awesome experience to be able to have the system work well enough that I didn't have to, you know, really think about it that hard. And it was just like using my hand 
you know, prior to my spinal cord injury. Jen, what was your experience like? My experience. Was it exhausting working in the lab? The, the amount of cognitive, the amount of energy that it took? Now, actually, when I left the lab, I always felt energized because I was enjoying what I was doing so much. I would get home and have all this mental energy. And that's where it helped to be able to start writing again because I'd have a lot of energy for it. Uh, it obviously wasn't physically taxing. I mean, the only thing I did physical was driving my wheelchair with my chin up and down the hill and getting in and out of the van. No, I I was always energized by it. And I've never been, um, I guess, physically fatigued uh, using the BCI. Like I've said, the, the control was really intuitive, but that's not to say I haven't been fatigued during uh, testing at the lab. Sometimes, especially like a sensory-only task where I'm just I'm getting a bunch of stimulations all in a row and I'm just saying which one was more intense or you know, which one was more similar to this or that. And they just, they can go on for a long time. I can just kind of easily lose some of my attention sometimes. So we started um, recently uh, taking more breaks and doing like Washington Post crossword puzzles, uh, keeping my mind more active during some of these tasks that are really just repetitive and simple to the point where I can kind of autopilot them when I should pay more attention sometimes. I'm right there with you. There were certainly a few of the more boring experiments that we did that, um, you know, were (laughs) on the edge of putting me to sleep. I mean, the three of you have all done a lot of really interesting things. One, one that Jan and Nathan have in common is the creation of art. Um, You both used your interface for that. Let's hear more about that experience. Jan, we'll start with you because you, I, I believe that were you I think you were the first to create art with Hector, right? Okay, if you want to call it art, the program I used, I would move Hector. Hector is the name I gave my robotic arm, okay? So I would move my robotic arm in space, and that would move a pointer on the screen and make an image. But the image disappeared after maybe 60 seconds. So what I did one time was I drew the outline of a hand. And by the time I got to the pinky finger and was finishing it, the very beginning started to disappear. So we were able to get a screenshot of the whole hand. So I called that Hector's first self-portrait. <laughs> oh, if only NFTs had been around at that time, you definitely could have. Uh... <laughs> well, I, I didn't do a lot. Nothing I would certainly call art. I mean, scribbles. We did. One day they taped a marker onto Hector. And I was supposed to try to draw on a erase board that they held up. It was hard to keep the marker pressed against the erase board. Now, Andy Schwartz was our lead guy, the scientist who started all this, doing the implants in monkeys 20, 30 years ago. So. After he left the office, they held the board up in front of me to move the board to write the letters Andy on it. And when the Andy, oh, that's cool. Yeah, when the Andy came in the next day, said, look what I did. And his eyes got big. Really? You did that yesterday? We all burst out laughing, told him how we cheated the system. But yeah, nothing like what Nathan does. I think that's a good segue, Nathan. Yeah. 
Let's let's hear about all that's going on, and it's a very active world for me. Jen is right wrong at in one way is uh, you can call Squiggles art because I have some NFT Squiggles up, and hopefully someone will buy them. But yeah, so uh, one of the big experiments we started doing, like maybe two years in, was cursor control on the on the computer. Uh, one of the first ways uh, that we started. Uh, really assessing my control would be to use uh, a paint program. I would just have like up, down, left, right, and a click. And so I would think about like uh, pinching my index, middle, and thumb together. And that would kind of be my, my click. All my first things I drew were squiggles. And I started uh, using a different program and using the shapes and stuff. So I started drawing like a turkey and a snowman and and some stuff like that. And it was uh, a good way to assess control because I could start doing something and they would be able to tell what I was intending to do uh, without me having to actually say, I'm going to draw this. And so then you can go, okay, this is working as intended. Um, well, he's not accidentally drawing a turkey. So I, I did stuff like that. And then March 2020, a week after the world shut down and I wasn't going into the lab for um, testing anymore, uh, they had arranged for me to take home a portable system that I could use at home. And it, it's not as powerful as like the lab setup. So basically the cursor is all it can, all it can do. That let me play video games with a keyboard emulator and draw. And one of the things I ended up drawing was the cat. BCI cat one, the calico is what I named the NFT that I put up at the end of the summer. and. It sat there for eight months till someone finally paid uh, what was the equivalent of 11 grand at the time on OpenSea. And it's one of those things where, you know, I, I've always enjoyed drawing with the BCI. And it's, you know, it's just something fun to do. I can do a doodle or I can try something more complex. And I'd always dreamed big, like when I first started drawing, like turkeys and stuff, I was like, oh, there's lots of art museums here in Pittsburgh. Maybe one will pay like a million dollars for one of these or something. Like I'll change my life. You know, I've seen, I've seen some stuff at the Warhol Museum that was substantially yeah, less interesting than your artwork. Yeah. I so. would agree, Nathan. It's just, you get, yeah, know the right people or something. I don't know. Was, <laughs> you have a pretty substantial on... collection, though. Now, I mean, how many pieces have you made? Uh, pieces, pr probably at least twenty. I don't have them all up as NFTs, but um, I did sell that first one. And I thought, okay, maybe people do find value in this stuff besides me just, you know, having some fun. So I've sold a few more, and I got invited to be on Super Rare, and so maybe that'll you know, hopefully get me some more exposure and I have drawn some more complex things and I actually am in the almost done with drawing this eye eyeball, coloring it in because I liked the pun of BCIs. So <laughs> I think I'm gonna do a, a series of, of eyes. Uh, if someone wanted to buy your artwork or wanted to commission you, how would they get in touch with you? Because like, there might be someone um, here who's like, holy shit, I wanna have a BCI 
artwork. I'm on OpenSea, Super Rare, uh, Twitter, email. It's all BCI can do better. Um, the email's at Gmail. Uh, LinkedIn, I actually just posted on LinkedIn the other day of, I'd really love to live in a place like this. And it was a Zillow listing to a condo that's in Pittsburgh. It is amazing. I just randomly looked it up. I was like, I wonder if, you know, I could buy a house and kind of live in a better situation than I am right now. And I just, I was like, what's the coolest place in Pittsburgh? But I posted on LinkedIn. I was like, does anyone want to like work out a unconventional deal where we have a contract where I make X amount of commissioned pieces and I get X property to live, live at. So nothing has come about but yeah so i haven't done any commissions yet but i am open to it i'm also on instagram and i got a message from music producer guy on instagram he was like i want to work with you and i said this is what i'm doing right now and so now once i've finally finished my first bci it has a song to go with it that's amazing Mul- multi-platinum guy and wow worked with a lot of a lot of artists and it was it, kind of funny because when I I replied to him I said oh this is the image that I'm working on now he said oh I think I can think of something with with that and he kept messaging me like every like 30 minutes he's like oh I've got like a melody down and uh, you know I figured this part out and he made a post of him working at his studio and had like 53,000 like views already after like a couple hours and so I was like this is cool so open for more collabs is the vision to take the music and and pair it with the artwork or will be like a moving image that shows you making it how how are you going to be releasing that um it'll just be it'll play with the the artwork so it'll be you know a a little video i guess that's amazing and when can we expect to see that i don't know life is not full of enough hours There's, there's a million things that have kept me from just putting the last couple hours into this thing because, you know, I go to testing and two weeks ago I had COVID and there's always something that I'm either not around or I'm doing something or it's my day off, but I'm just too tired to, to work on it. So hopefully within the next week or two, I will be able to finish it. Um, Speaking of high profile, uh, you're the only person I know that's fist bumped Barack Obama. That was the coolest thing I had ever done with the BCI um, for a few years until I finally got to go to Japan and speak at some conferences. So Japan kind of bumped that down just just a little bit because that was my live stream. But yeah, uh, handshake and fist bump with Obama was definitely the, the second coolest thing I've ever done with the BCA. Yeah, I was a bit envious of that. Although I met Scott Pelley, I was on 60 Minutes. So that got a lot of uh, fame. I had my 15 minutes where I was being called by every scientific journal and asked for interviews left and right. So that was cool. And I very much enjoy public speaking about this. I have a whole slide presentation and pictures from the experiment and I talk about it and I've spoken to, yeah, groups of a couple hundred people about this and very much enjoy and they've got a real good reaction. All of you do public speaking. I think it's really important that we all share our experiences because there's just a few of us. And that's why I'm glad that 
you know, we're able to do something like this. Um, Nathan and I and a couple other individuals did a panel at the Society for Neuroscience annual meeting a few years back, but I think that's, you know, part of the responsibility that you have if you're in one of these research studies is to really help the field grow because we see the potential firsthand and the only way it's going to get out some more people and become something that you can just go to your doctor and say, Hey, I want a BCI. Um, it's going to take more people hearing about it, more people talking about it. And I think that's already pretty evident just in the last few years, how much investment we've seen in the space and how kind of crazy it's getting. It's exciting to see where we'll be in, you know, seven more years. Ian, you've also been quite busy with your foundation. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing? Certainly. I noticed early on in my spinal cord injury that I was very lucky in the sense that I had my injury one year out of high school. So I was still had pretty good ties to the community and that helped the community rally around me when I had my injury. In addition to, you know, still being on my parents' health insurance and, you know, having support from my parents as well, that I was in a better off position than many other people who have spinal cord injuries. And so after we made a lot of headlines with the BCI trial that I was involved in, I had an individual contact me saying that, you know, the story really struck a chord with him. Um, And he was just asking how to help. And I told him that I wanted to start a nonprofit for other individuals with spinal cord injuries. And so he used some of his resources to help me get that off the ground. Um, And since we have raised over $150,000 to help individuals with items like shower chairs or ramps for their house, um, exercise equipment, all varying types of things that aren't usually covered by insurance, but really help improve the independence of individuals with spinal cord injuries. And so that's been something really exciting for me to work on as a way to kind of give back and keep involved with the spinal cord injury community. Thanks everyone so much for listening. Reminder that we have an episode two where we will dive into everyone's personal journey as a trial participant and their hopes for the future of BCI tech as well as some questions and answers from past podcast participants. Um, All of you can also follow, subscribe, check out the show notes for more details. See you for episode two.